If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast which does not take corporate advertisers, and we really hope to keep it this way, we do need your help to keep the show alive. And if every listener chipped in just a little bit a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today at greendreamer.com support. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to sign up to our newsletter at greendreamer.com to receive the highlights and resources from each episode. Like one of the intro courses that we have is the Freudian concept of neutrality, where once that treatment starts, that's when the patient's social identity, that's when politics leaves the door and then you start treatment. That's like one of the things that I, or one of the concepts that I was pretty passionate about addressing during grad school is that, y'all, if, if we leave out identity, if we leave out the very sources as to why my client is sick in the first place, then I don't see why this is not a cycle. In this episode, we're speaking with Gabes Torres, a therapist, organizer, and artist who was born and raised in the Philippines and whose work focuses on imperialism and its vast impact on our collective mental health. With her undergraduate degree, she focused on the Western Church's crucial influence on the Philippines' history and present reality of Christian hegemony and colonization. She later focused on post-colonialism and labor unionizing with her master's in theology and culture, and then went into counseling psychology for another master's, where her clinical research and practice paid attention to the trauma from racialized violence and forced migration. Both of her masters took place in Seattle, where she organized with abolitionist and anti-imperialist groups at a local grassroots level. Today, in her clinical practice, Gabes works primarily with women, femmes, and or trans patients of the global majority, and she is a mentor to therapists, organizers, artists, and culture workers around the world. One of the things that came up for me, and still do, is just the troubling ways that higher education kind of like severs individuals from 
from context. And growing up in a collectivist culture, it's not if but how I see things and people connect to their context, and that includes their political and systemic backgrounds. So I don't know if folks are, or if you're familiar with attachment theory, but attachment theory is basically a theory that analyzes the connection between infant or child and their caregiver and how that connection or lack of connection affects the infant or child's psychobiological development and their later relationships. So if the infant and caregiver had what's called like an attuned connection, like there's enough closeness and there's also enough like distance, like the caregiver is not smothering the infant. It's likely that the infant is going to grow up to be a securely attached adult. But if the caregiver was absent, it's likely that the the infant is going to have a preoccupied attachment, meaning when it comes to their later relationships as an adult, they get a little bit more anxious about abandonment whenever their partners are, are seemingly emotionally unavailable. They freak out a little bit and try as much as they can to retain the relationship, even though the relationship is pretty stable. So that's a little bit, of, that's kind of like an oversimplistic way of describing attachment theory with a lot more attachment styles. But when I studied that, well, one, there was, there was more of the, I noticed that there's a little bit more of the diagnosing than there is, or the analyzing of the problem than it is looking into into solutions. And perhaps that's more specific to my education background. And then the second was that it didn't apply to me as much knowing that I had more than one caregiver. You know, like the way that it was taught was that there was, there was only two. And usually it's a hetero couple that raises the child. And my questions were, well, what if I was raised by many, you know? Mm. And what if like, what if my concerns around relationship have more to do with a wider um, set of relationships than just romantic or dating or marital partnerships? Because that's also what it looked like it concerned, like that attachment theory impacted only traditionally romantic monogamous relationships. So those were kind of my questions. And perhaps to add to that, too, with regard to attachment theory, I was so mindful during that time, especially of the more reported increased reports around about family separation like what what does the infant slash child relationship with their caregiver look like in the context of family separation in the context of anti-immigrant policy that the child was separated from their family was separated from their parent not because it's the parent's choice but it's because of the state, that it's because of this abrupt and atrocious separation where ICE invades their home. You know, what does that, what does that look like? What does the child's neuro, nervous system and, and neural activity look like in light of that? So I was kind of like bringing those questions, like how do we politicize, how do we collectivize these approaches? And I think that the conversation, ever since especially the pandemic, 
there's been an increase of conversation as to how we, the words that folks use is decolonize or radicalize psychotherapy. And we're also, <laughs> I think that we're also in a way like a ways to go, knowing that that therapists and therapeutic treatment is still is still within the context of an industry. And as long as any work is in the industry, it's always tied to capitalism. It's always tied to some degree of exploitation. Like I know in the so-called United States, there's been a therapist shortage. A lot of my therapist friends have been in a way like participating in an exodus from the field because mm -hmm. of burnout, because they're underpaid, and because they don't see a lot of hope in finding sustainable care within the mental health industry. And, you know, everybody has their different story. But but I also think that there can be glimpses of hope that can radiate from the community, maybe not so much the industry, but from the community itself. I know for myself personally, like I grew from my community of fellow therapists. So, but yeah, there are a lot more questions. I think there are more questions <laughs> even yeah. more so now than, than ever. And there's also the concern of over-pathologizing, which disproportionately affects communities of color and people of the global majority and those struggling with poverty. And in some cases, there's also even been made-up pathologies named to keep people in line with the social order desired by those exerting their power. So I would appreciate if you could elaborate on how certain illnesses have been historically socially constructed against certain expectations or standards for particular groups of people so that what might otherwise be considered reasonable and understandable reactions to the societal forces that people are facing end up labeled and treated as problematic and a sickness to get rid of. What are some examples of right. over pathologizing or arbitrarily pathologizing that have really stood out to you? Yeah, we can date it as early as the mid-1800s, where a psychiatrist named Samuel Cartwright invented or made up this disease, this pathology called drapetomania. And this was a mental disorder that, quote-unquote, caused enslaved Africans to run away from slaveholders and... This was written in clinical texts. It's kind of like our version of, I suppose, like psychology textbooks and the DSM. And atrocious as it may sound, grotesque as it may sound, it was kind of like, it, it was normal during that time to have those approaches. And it just shows how historically the world of mental health and psychology has perceived in different scales, and it's changed over time, but in different scales, how resistance to oppression or resistance to bondage is a disease. And the ways that that's seen today comes up in different ways. And I think I've always thought that Black and Indigenous folks are the most impacted in this, where I think of my the the times when I was looking for for therapy and how there was kind of this this pressure to be well in order to keep functioning in order to keep going back to school keep going back to work if that makes mm. sense like it didn't ask about my sense of 
aliveness, like where my desires were. Like it only wanted me to be well enough so that I can go back to work in school. I think that's one and one personal example of how that might look like that its only function in my life is to see how I was functional and how I was usable by the system. The other examples that I could think about is the the normalized structures and cultures of policing within the mental health industry and also in psychology education where I was often really like harshly criticized for for a lot of ways in which I challenged or criticized the theory itself as if there's like a standard of what it means to be a quote unquote healthy human when really what it seemed like their standard was for a healthy human was to be what to was to be white and cis and abled and thin and living in or raising a nuclear family and the ways that i challenged that was was risky in a way that my grade was at stake and that's another thing like i feel like the grading system in any form of education is also a form of policing that we don't talk about enough mm. and i feel like there's just yeah there's just a lot in the education system that has to be addressed and back to the policing in the mental health industry we can see the the ways in which especially disabled and trans folks and black indigenous and people of color over pathologized and in that have suffered through different kinds of forced treatments different kinds of of ways of as you said like being over pathologized when really the roots of their depression and anxiety have so much to do with the system and if the therapist and especially if the therapist is white cis and and a hetero person they have a different reality and what ends up happening is it it's set up for the potential to be gaslit like the patient who has oppressed identities is likely to be gaslit because of that power dynamic because of the therapist does not understand their reality so the the ways in which over pathologizing and also policing are infused and incorporated in treatment can range in different scales and i think that one one important thing that i would emphasize is just the normalization of disposability of disposability culture in that industry where just because the the patient is not showing traits or behaviors or characteristics or even like physical characteristics of what it means to be a healthy person there's an impulse a systemic and collective impulse to to dispose of this person and that is dehumanizing and that is that always angers me knowing that the mental health industry is it's where vulnerable people who want to heal go to you know there's like an an element of helplessness and for that person who just wants to get better and and it always angers me whenever that culture of disposability of over pathologizing takes over because of this because of this reality because a person just wants to get better mm. There definitely seems to be a sort of cultural and systemic gaslighting going on. And even just this idea that the dominant extractivist culture sees 
something like fatigue and unproductivity as mm -hmm. problems? Like what if there weren't value judgments on fatigue and bodily cause to rest, but they were just able to be seen as just that? Like we have cause to work, cause to show up for our people, and also cause to rest so that our other bodily functions and senses can work and be productive in their own ways. So just some more questions to sit with there. And to the idea of health, lately I've really been sitting with the question of what health even means. And as you've shared, mm -hmm. it costs too much to stay alive and to not live in pain. We are struggling in a simulation that convinces us that to take good care of ourselves is a burden. This is one of the cruelest realities mm -hmm. that this classist and ableist system has normalized, end quote. And to this point, especially in the last years, as I've engaged with more people who earn a living using physical labor, whose daily work is extremely taxing on their bodies, you know, when they pull out, let's say, a cigarette or a Coke or a soft drink to help relieve their pains and exhaustion and stress, which helps them to alleviate those symptoms and get through the day, I really have started to question whether the concept of what is considered healthy has been over-standardized and universalized. Right. Because in a sense, overworking, first of all, could be understood as a symptom of the capitalist extractivist classist, ableist, and racialized culture and economy. And if we point to people doing whatever they need as immediate relief, as their problem of ill health, rather than mm. another mode of symptom alleviation, just like the many other forms of medical drugs out there as well that also have some side effects but are never really labeled as unhealthy, maybe due to industry influence, then just all of this type of framing takes us further from getting to the heart of the erosion of our collective and interdependent well-being. And I'd just be curious mm -hmm. how your views on what it means to be healthy and well or what individual actions are considered healthy or not have evolved or shifted as you've mm -hmm. dove deeper into maintaining a collectivist and contextualized lens looking at mental health. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. You know, sometimes I don't use the word health anymore because of how much the the over-standardized versions of health has really overtaken the word for me. Mm. So whenever I think about or hear the word health or healthy, it's it always goes back to those over-standard impositions of what it means to be healthy. So I, I use the terms like regulated or co-regulated more, which means that my nervous system is attuned or feels safe with other nervous systems or other systems or other ecosystems because that assumes more than just the human species. Like a person could be in a place of homeostasis even in the presence of non-human species, which the, the mental health industry doesn't talk about enough, like how it's like to have attachment figures or to co-regulate with the natural world. Instead of healthy, I also use the word like emotional availability or intelligence even, or perhaps more availability because mm. it, and you y'all are probably noticing how much my, my approach to healing has more to do with how I'm, how I am connected to the rest of the members of the ecosystems. <laughs> and even like beyond the beyond this plane, like if the client, if my client leads with it, 
we would talk about what it's like to connect with with ancestors, what it's like to connect with what we call spiritual guides or their own interpretations and associations with the spiritual realm because our spirituality is also a part of our well-being and it's also one of the aspects of who we are that's colonized and so i feel like it's also necessary to find some healing in that in that area and that part of our lives mm-hmm. so when it comes to i think you mentioned like short term ways to ease to ease ourselves it's not that i always get stuck but i always like i'm all about self soothing tools right i'm all about like finding ways to address and attend to present pain you know and what is so devastating about the system right now is that you really need a lot of money to be able to ease that pain and i see that more he- being here in the global south where not a lot of people have access to those uh, ways of alleviating their pain due to poverty due, due to mass poverty etc and so with that with my proximity to these contexts i find it important to get to the <laughs> to the root issue all the time like why do these experiences of disease happen in the first place and this is when i get into organizing or try to incorporate or organizing with my clinical work and organizing has that vision or has that focus to address and divest and dismantle the very sources of corruption that cause the unequal or inequitable distribution of resources opportunity and rights and the the sources as to why our our very rights are violated why the planet is is damaged and has to to outlive a lot of the industrialization. And so with that, I feel like this is when my desire for therapists to be, become more aware of that importance of connecting the systemic and collective reality with treatment because what therapists like one of the intro courses that we have is the Freudian concept of neutrality where once that treatment starts that's when the patient's social identity that's when politics leaves the door and then you start treatment that's like one of the things that i or one of the concepts that i was pretty passionate about addressing during grad school is that y'all if if we leave out identity if we leave out the very sources as to why my client is sick in the first place then i don't see why this is not a cycle you know they they go to work or they go to work they enter society and and all of my clients are black indigenous and people of color so they go to work and they enter society they experience depression and so they go back and find help they seek treatment they find a therapist and usually more often than not again like the reason why they go to therapy is because they want to be well enough so that they can go back to work and it it doesn't feel like the root cause is addressed in that regard so th- that's when i feel like a lot of contexts of mental health that that's what it's what's missing 
you know? And mm-hmm. I can understand why therapists would find it hard to address that too, because it would mean that if we get to the root cause, they're out of work. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's one of the things that I had to face within myself. That like, Gabe's, if you want to be, if, if you really want to walk the talk, then that would mean that that you won't have clients anymore if we try to get to, I mean, like I, I try to like provide therapy in a way where the client is aware of these dynamics, you know, within their own time and pace. And also I want to do therapy in a way that would make therapy obsolete, that my clients are able to cultivate the cultures and the relationships that would make it so that they don't need therapy anymore because they're co-regulated enough and enlivened enough that with their relationships that they find their own self-soothing tools and find meaningful relationships to, you know, to get by and to not just get by in life, but to flourish in life. And I had to really confront myself and ask that question, Gabes, are you really willing to participate in that level of radicalization? And as a human being, I would, you know, I would waver. Like that's scary to me. That's risky to me. But I have to to be really honest about how I desire this for my clients out of a love for them, out of a love for, for my own self and wanting these flourishing relationships and this form of co-regulation to be, to be normalized just for the sake of freedom, just for the sake of our planet and just for the sake of our future, of our descendants, whether biological or non-biological. I don't know if I drifted from your question, but that's what came out for me. Yeah, thank you. And I mean, just with the broader contexts that make people who they are and lead people to having the stresses and anxieties that they have in their own lives, with all of that left out, there really could just be more of what could feel like implicit gaslighting going on from what people turn to Mm. for support and help with. So I think that really resonates with me, the importance of not objectifying, not isolating, not reducing, and to keep broadening yeah. and rooting people in the context of their lives and the systems and, yeah, wherever they are. And something that you noted is that there is nothing post about post-colonialism because the legacy and impacts of historical happenings live on to shape the realities of today. And beyond the more material injustices and remnants from the past, I want to talk about intergenerational trauma and how our bodies express or hold on to traumas experienced by our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, and so forth, which you started to touch on in the introduction. But what do we know about Mm -hmm. how historical traumas might still affect those with lineages tied to those past events? And what implications would this have on, for example, the mostly accepted idea of meritocracy or people earning their status, power, wealth based on their individual abilities and merits as a gold standard of fairness? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for addressing that. So the intergenerational transmission of trauma, whenever I'm in a room of, of Black, Indigenous, and people of color, I always say that it might feel like it might seem that the sciences have confirmed this reality that we've inherited trauma. And I feel like we've already sensed it for a while. Like we've known of this intuitively, even before the science has confirmed this, that that we have inherited a lot of the the wounds and the hypervigilance of our ancestors 
which is also over-pathologized within the mental health industry. And we also have to recognize that it is, in a way, like our ancestors' gift of, of knowing what it's like to survive in a world that targets us in, in different scales. One example that I could think of is my cousin. She, she has financial stability. And yet, whenever she feels like she's running out of toilet paper, of rice, or any, anything that she considers a basic need, even if it's not even close to running out, she needs to always supply it with more toilet paper, with more rice, with mm. more food, etc. And, you know, she's always asked, like, why is it that I have this internal impulse to want to make sure that I'm not running out? When, and then we kind of like had that conversation where I was like, Ate, I think it has to do with the fact that our ancestors or, or Lola or even Lola's Lola or grandmother's grandmother, they know what it's like to run out, to run out of, of basic needs. And so their survival strategy, I feel like you've internalized, you know, that's kind of like a way, like that's a way of framing it that doesn't over pathologize the, the survival tactic or the, the internalized survival strategy. And what the sciences have recently confirmed is that it doesn't just happen like the intergenerational transmission of trauma is not just in the behavioral level like um like a social level but also in an in a genetic level like the way that we've inherited trauma is in our very cells and if folks want to delve in further um, around that the the field of study is called epigenetics and one of the first studies of epigenetics is when neuroscientists had interviewed folks of Jewish, Jewish descent. And I believe like one of the things that really caught my attention was how folks of Jewish descent had nightmares that was similar to that of their ancestors' nightmares during the Holocaust. And I thought that that was really, that was so fascinating to me. And, so, and perhaps there was like a I was curious about it because maybe there's some resonance with that experience and, and for, for me. And I feel like one of the things that's important too is I don't want to focus that much on the trauma. I mean, we it has to be focused on. Like there has to be an element of validating a lot of what we feel, a lot of what we experience, and all that is true. Like all of that is yours and all of that is also passed on. And I also want to say that we are more than our wounds. You know, we have inherited more than just the trauma. We have also inherited the medicine. We've also inherited the, the joy. <laughs> We've also inherited laughter. I think about my great-grandfather, who is a musical composer. I recently just found out about this. Like, he's a musical composer. He's a violinist. And, and I didn't know this until recently, but I've been... Um, I've been doing music since I could, since I was barely conscious. Like I have been singing, I have been writing songs since young, and it was just really neat to to realize that that I have this ancestor who I just recently found out about that I perhaps like inherited a lot of their own skills and their own ways of creative expression. 
So I find it important to emphasize that we have received not just wounding, but also but also joy and also a sense of being that that is collective, that trusts the ecosystem, that has a different, a, per, a particular interpretation of what it means to be free, of what it means to live. So I think that that's such a, a, a vital, for me at least, like that's a vital thing to, to talk about whenever we talk about the transmission of trauma that we've also inherited medicine. And, and in light of meritocracy, I think about the ways in which it challenges transactional relationships or transactional ways of being. I think that the just the fact that we've, like, for example, like I've received a lot of my great grandfather's musical gifts. I think that that in and of itself challenges that concept that it just flowed through the lineage and I received it. But it's also a matter of whether or not I would say yes to it and say yes to it in a way that I would practice the musical skill enough that it can become a professional skill or a hobby. And I think the word gift also comes to mind. And I know that you know folks have different interpretations of that, perhaps uh, some feelings of discomfort as well, because a lot of things I know from myself, like a lot of things were taken from me, but that was perceived as gift giving. So I just want to emphasize or want to highlight that that concept or that potential association. But but yeah, the very fact that a lot of the survival mechanism, the the sharpness of, of focus of skill is received as opposed to earned, I feel like that in and of itself challenges a lot of the capitalist impulses of needing to work so hard to gain. And I think that what what that brings to mind is that what if we do, we are meant in a culture of ease? <laughs> what if we have so bought in to the concepts of capitalism that we forget about abundance, like just the natural sense of abundance that we have in in the world and it just so happens that our that capitalism our major pollutants have led us to forget forget about how we are meant in this culture of ease and how we do exist in natural abundance and i think that there's something about knowing how connected i am to my ancestors that reminds me of that the, the term that comes to mind is is remember, like not necessarily like remember as in memory, of course, that's that's part of it, but I mean like re hyphen member. Like because we've been dismembered from from our ancestors, from our communities, there has to be some degree of remembering or putting ourselves back together to be reminded of this. The fact that we're an ecosystem, the fact that we are naturally abundant, and it just so happens that we live in a world where internal and natural resources are polluted and privatized, that it makes sense that we would forget. It makes sense that we have to live in a way that's transactional because of those realities. Mm. 
Well, I think a lot of people have skewed perspectives of those with mental health conditions, primarily uh, that those that do are more dangerous, crazy, unpredictable, and more likely to commit acts of violence. And I think much of this comes from maybe movies, stories, and the media having disproportionately portrayed mental health in particular ways. And in reality, as I've learned, people with mental health illnesses at large are no more likely than the quote-unquote average population to enact violence or commit crime based on how the state defines crime. And in fact, as a call for more compassion rather than fear or judgment, people with mental illnesses are more likely to be the victims of crime and violence than to be perpetrators. But how do you think the media has contributed to the public skewed perception and understanding of mental health? And what do you see as the power of storytelling to seed more rooted and life-enhancing imaginations and ultimately help to co-create a more caring world, as you say, with more fierce kindness? Yeah, life-enhancing imaginations. I love that. Thank you, Camille. So historically, the entertainment industry has always been, has always portrayed mental illness as, as you said, like dangerous and even like hopeless, like dangerous to such a superlative degree. Like it's, it's so, it just stuns me how normalized that is, that then creates a stigma, a stigma that fears mental illness. Like I think about how movies portray schizophrenia and depression, etc. When, as you said, like these cases of, of severe mental illness causing you know, crime or dangerous acts is very, very few. And of course, like the industry would want to create spectacles that would lead them to earn money. Anyway, so I'm not, I'm not going to drift because so many ideas come to mind when it comes to media <laughs> consumption with regard to that, but I'm going to stay here in this lane. And I think that having that conversation is so important. And I also recognize how the evolution of storytelling is going about right now. I think about the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once. I think it's the best movie of the year so far. And the way that it portrayed depression was kind and creative and even not so scary. <laughs> like it was accessible and in a way, it was like resonant for those who have depression and perhaps more specifically to those who have Asian ancestry or who are of Asian descent in, in the United States. Like, I think one of the powerful parts of the film was how, like, after folks or after um, certain folks who are of Asian descent watched it with their parents, like, there was like a kind of like a, an act of forgiveness that took place after the film. Because the parents understood their child's experience a little bit more. Like, I remember when the movie was out, a lot of my clients, majority of my clients who are of Asian descent, started talking about it that week mm -hmm. and wanted to process it with me and wanted to use some of the elements of it to make sense of who they are in a way that, again, was not scary, in a way that did not stigmatize mental illness. So I feel like there are parts of mainstream storytelling that is, is starting to destigmatize mental illness in a way that 
again, like is kind, is creative, is empowering, that doesn't stereotype or overgeneralize the experience, but as a conversation starter, really. Like, I feel like that's what storytelling does for us is that it it incites or invites more storytelling. I feel like that is, if not for that story, we would not be able to see our story in a way. Like, I feel like whenever I tell a story, right, whenever I welcome my specificity, my the particularities of who I am, it, there's something about that that invites another person, that encourages another person to look into themselves, to see the parts that resonate, to see the parts that that perhaps don't. And then it, it kind of compels the other to explore their, themselves and to also, with a bit of courage and risk, to also share. And I feel like, in a way, that's the point of it, is just the, the generativity, you know? As you said, like the uh, the generativity from of what was it like enhanced um, imagination, life enhancing imagination, life enhancing. Thank you. Yes, the life enhancing imaginations, the the many different ways in which creativity can flourish within the context of a multiplicity of stories, a multiplicity of poetries, and of just anthologies in general, and the many different mediums that that can go about. Yeah, and. Like I think about also like the some violence too that that film or mainstream media shows, which I think um, has to be handled with some degree of care. Again, not to the point of making it a spectacle, not to the point of making it like trauma porn is what people call it. But I feel like there's some degree of of not sanitizing the grotesqueness of a situation that that has to be portrayed as well. Like it's not just like the medicine from the film, but also somehow we have to also display or communicate the grotesqueness of what had happened, the the atrocity that has happened, has been happening to be able to also incite a lot of these conversations, this discourse of what it means to be a human, what it means to be a human in this world and during this time. Yeah. I love the idea of storytelling that invites more storytelling and openness and curiosity rather than leads to hard conclusions or judgments. So I'll definitely be taking this away with me. And just to further this conversation, further expand this conversation a little before we come to a wrap, I've been curious to look at the climate crisis as a relational crisis, as a reflection of the erosion of place-based relationships and rooted communities, including the human and more than human world. Because the more fragmented the relationships of all kinds are in a community, the more energy and water and labor intensive it would be in order to upkeep all of the systems that we and our broader ecological bodies need in order to survive and thrive. So I've wondered what thoughts or reframes it might invite if we were to apply the lens of therapy and context-aware therapy onto Mm. the Earth's ailments, so not to reduce them into isolated parts and mathematical equations and elements. What have you thought through on this front and what does this stir up for you in the moment? Yeah, yeah. I love how you frame it in a way that that the climate crisis is a relational crisis. I feel that same way about post-colonialism being a relationship issue as well. I just feel like it's always going to come from relationship. Like a lot of our 
a lot of our issues, a lot of our crises, a lot of our struggles are in the context of relationship. And it must also mean that our healing and our liberation is also in the context of relationships, that it is it is through relationships that we are liberated. So I love that you started there. In the context of therapy, I think that my response is going to be a little bit more specific or contextualized within being here in the global South, where a lot of the outcomes from hyper-industrialization of fossil fuel industries, like we are the ones in different, in to disproportionate degrees are experiencing, are bearing the brunt of climate calamity. Like about two weeks ago, there was a super, well, it wasn't a super typhoon, but it was, it, it should be a super typhoon that hit the Philippines. We did not expect it, the extent of it that hit the Philippines um, that caused at least 150 casualties and thousands of families displaced again from their homes. And this is in the context of just recovering from the previous typhoon. And so I feel like this, like the question of how connected mental health is with, with climate, I've, I feel a certain close proximity to it. Like it's not a question, but if, but how, you know, it's connected. Like I think about my I mentor certain organizers, young organizers and activists here in the Philippines, and majority of them are youth climate activists. And what's interesting, Kamea, is that these, these young, young folks are, while they're the most hopeful folks that I've worked with, they're, they're also the most anxious. Mm. They're the most anxious because they you know, they work with farmers directly. They work with the poor directly. And I can only imagine just the vicarious trauma that they've internalized from being exposed to a lot of these stories, to a lot of these cases. And yet, again, they're also the most hopeful, even in their anxiety, their extreme anxiety. And I think whenever I ask them, you know, what brings them hope, what keeps your hope strong and soft at the same what what keeps your hope strong and what keeps your heart soft is because they're also they're also in closer proximity to the farmers as well and the land as well like they are aware of the natural reciprocity amongst species they know the the processes of vegetation, of pollination, of how there are many ecosystems within one ecosystem. They know the earth's capacity to heal herself and to also, even while healing herself, sustaining us. And again, that's a, also like a disproportionate, unreciprocal way as well. So I feel like the reason for their hope is because they have an internalized understanding of how natural abundance is. And again, it just so happens that the state interferes and violates that abundance, capitalizes on that abundance or capitalizes on our fear of scarcity in that regard. And finally, I want to close off our main conversation by landing on your dream of a future where therapists are no longer needed. 
What do you mean when you say mm-hmm. that we ought to decenter therapy as a source of care and not standardize it as the mode of healing? And at the same time, what would you recommend for people wanting to turn to therapy to help them better mm-hmm. cope with their conditions of today while they work to strengthen their broader networks of relational interdependence mm-hmm. and care and support? I think that as you look for clinical support, I think the question that is helpful in asking yourself is like, what does, and I know that I kind of challenged the word health earlier, but I would ask y'all like, what does health mean for you? What does well-being mean for you? And ask that question to your potential therapist or potential social worker. Like what does health and healing mean for you? And see if there's some resonance or alignment there. Cause I, I can't understand how hard it can be to find a socially aware, politically aware therapist. But I, I would also like to believe that they're out there. And this is why I bring up to like the need to decenter therapy, because again, like it's hard to access a therapist in general, uh, hard to access a therapist who you can afford, hard to access someone who has some political alignment, spiritual alignment with <clears throat> with you. And it's also possible to find care from a multiplicity of places, whether that may be relationships that are, I, I'm a huge fan of friendships, honestly. Like I have, I'm at a point in my life where I feel like my, my friendships are kind of like my lovers, <laughs> my platonic lovers, my platonic soulmates. And being in this society, like, I feel like there's like a hierarchical, hierarchical way of perceiving relationships, like marital or dating relationships are at the top, nuclear families at the top, and then friendships are at the bottom. And yet we can experience intimacy in platonic spaces. So that's, that's what I mean by decentering therapy is what is it like to find healing or the feelings of being known in, in places that have been have always been there and yet were diminished in terms of value that were, again, like put in the bottom of this so-called hierarchy of relational, of relationships. So that's, that's one area that I would look at. I love talking about the multiplicity of intimacies and finding sources of care, but other ways too. And this comes from like a this is very subjective, but for me at least, like I think that we talked about storytelling earlier. Like, if not for storytelling, if not for poetry, if not for movies, if not for my what's what I call my literary companions, I don't think I would have gotten by the pandemic at all. So that's also another source of care that we could look into. Like, what is it like to co-regulate with with art? <laughs> What is it like to co-regulate with the natural world in a way that is not extractive? You know, what is it like to co-regulate or to um, to find connection with with things and with people and with with sources that have little to nothing to do with the, with the state? That really is what I mean by collectivizing and deinstitutionalizing care. Is it what? What is it like to heal that has little to nothing to do with the state? Right? What is it like to find medicine 
as opposed to medication. Although it, it is important to find medication. Like I am a huge proponent of finding medication. And I also believe that there's more to medication as well. Like it's, it's so important for a lot of folks. And I'm a huge advocate for that. And at the same time, like I feel like the way to disrupt the cycles of abuse and trauma that the mental health industry participates in is to have a fuller picture or imagination of what we already have. And, and I feel like we already have what we need. It just so happens that the state hinders us from seeing that or hinders us from accessing that. But I'd like for us to think that we already have what we need in order to heal. Like our bodies naturally self-heal. <laughs> like my, whenever I have a bruise, like it, it just heals itself. And I feel like that is a reflection of how it might look like in a more holistic point of view, including our mental health. What's been one of the most impactful books or publications that you've engaged with? I really loved On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vuong, or just anything Ocean Vuong related. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice that helps you to stay grounded? Basking in my ancestor altar and just talking to them and offering water and food and adoration to my ancestor altar. And what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? I think coming back to the motherland, ooh, makes me emotional a little bit. Didn't expect that. Um, coming back to the motherland is has been one of the greatest sources of inspiration. And it has to do with the fact that even though a lot of my people are going through unimaginable scales of of suffering of poverty of of struggle i see a lot of my people's hope i see a lot of their their willingness to still be hospitable to still be loving to still laugh and i know that that has to be complexified as well because we have to understand the notions of of false positivity and some bypassing, but I feel like the ability to hold, to uphold joy in the midst of suffering and, and, and strength in the midst of suffering has been a big one for me in, in, in inspiring me and motivating me in this life. So the return to the motherland has been a huge one for me. 
Well, we are coming to a close here, but Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Gabe's work, you can head to gabestorres.com and we will have more links to Gabe's work and references from this episode in our show notes as well at greendreamer.com. Gabe's, thank you so much for joining me here. I'm so grateful for your light and the gifts that you've offered us here. For now, though, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Mm, Thank you. Thank you. You are worthy of the healing and the medicine that you are bound to receive. You are worthy. That is it. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To make a contribution to help sustain and co-create the future of this show, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so, so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is The Witness by Rowan Rain. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.